Thank you, guys. Well, uh, thanks for hanging in there. We're almost done, and I hope your experience has been as enriching and as exciting as mine. We have thoroughly enjoyed our day, June and our girls, uh, with you in this area. I want to thank Steve and his team for their hospitality and all that they have, they have done for us, made it uh, such, a, such a blessing. And I hope that through the seminars and through the uh, sermons that, that you've been blessed and that your love for God has been deepened, your understanding of His Word broadened, and you're thankful that you have come to the conference. In fact, as the day unfolded, just as I enjoyed singing and hearing uh, how we might better and best worship God, I was reminded that when I was a young Christian, my father took me aside. He's been a Baptist for over uh, 55 years of his life, and uh, although I ended up being baptized and joining my father's Baptist church there, he did say to me one day, he said, Philip, you know what? Um, you know, wherever God takes you in His kingdom, that's fine with us. And he says, I learned a long time ago how rich the body of Christ is. And so I want to give you something to think about. He said, you know, now that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to treasure your faith like a Presbyterian. I want you to organize your faith like a Methodist. I want you to share your faith like a Baptist, and I want you to enjoy your faith like a Pentecostal. And that's not, that's not a bad uh, piece of advice, and I trust that um, you are treasuring your faith. I hope you're organizing your faith around the spiritual disciplines of God's Word, and that you are indeed sharing it with others, but above all, uh, that you're fulfilling the end for which you were created to glorify God and enjoy Him uh, forever. So, let's take our Bibles and uh, I want to look this afternoon with you at Psalm 103. For the sake of time, we're not going to read it all. It's 22 verses. We'll try and work our way through uh, the majority of them before we're done. Earlier today, we looked at Psalm 150, uh, a matter of life and breath. That's what worship is. And then alongside that, I want to look at the issue of just thanksgiving and praise and gratitude. Uh, that's what Psalm 103 is. It's the famous, bless the Lord Oh, my soul, uh, uh, ministry, and, 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 and psalm. Uh, we'll just read the opening five verses together. Why don't you stand again as we read God's Word? This is a psalm of David, and uh, we would do well to heed its instruction and its inspiration. Listen to these familiar words, but I hope as we work our way through the text, they'll come with a certain freshness. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits, who forgives all my iniquity, who heals all my diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So reads God's Word. You may be seated. I don't know if this annoys you, but I don't know if you've noticed this trend within our society where people just seem to be less grateful. They're, they're taking life for granted rather than with gratitude. And to me, this exemplifies itself when you and I maybe get into a department store, into a coffee shop, and you open the door for the person that's coming behind you. And I don't know about you, but it's up to at least five people out of ten in my life where they just walk through. It's like, you know what? You were created to do that for me. It just gets me going. And they just walk in. They don't say thank you. And, you know, and, and you know, sometimes I'll, I just respond by going, you're welcome. So that they get the message. Only do that once in a while. Uh, my, my persistent thought is, as they go through the door, to just kick them, you know where. Uh, so they go, what? I mean, what is wrong with you? You just come waltzing in like, you know, this is, everybody is, exists to serve you. And, and, you know, it happened to me this afternoon. I was over at Starbucks by our hotel at the marketplace area or whatever, and I opened the door for this girl, and she just walked straight in. I didn't say you're welcome, and I didn't kick her, but, you, you, you know, I, w I was a little ticked off, and I decided, you know what? That would make a good introduction to my sermon this afternoon, because she entered Starbucks without thanksgiving in her heart. And before I get on my high horse, God would remind me and humble me, and perhaps you, 
How many times I have gone through His gates without thanksgiving in my heart and entered His courts without praise. And I want to come and look at Psalm 103 with you this afternoon for a few minutes, a message I've called, Show Some Gratitude. Because there is a genre of psalms called the Thanksgiving Psalms or the Praise Psalms. And Psalm 103 is the Mount Everest of that category. We love this psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms in all the Psalter. It's, it's undiluted thanks. The psalmist just summons all that he is and addresses all of creation not to forget all God's benefits. This psalm has no lament in it. The psalmist isn't depressed. There's not a word of complaint. It's just unadulterated, undiluted thanksgiving to God. In fact, if you take a look at the opening of the psalm and some of the verses that follow, just in terms of this man's worship and thanksgiving, it's total. You see that in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. He wants to worship God, as the commandment says, with all of His mind and all of His heart and all of His soul. He wants to summon every faculty, physical, emotional, and volitional to come to worship God. He wanted it to be a full body experience. He wanted to put all, pull all, out all the stops in worshiping and giving thanks to God. And as we've said in verse 1, it's all of the man addressing all of the creation, verse 22, to give thanks to God for all of His benefits, verse 2. It's not only total, it's a matter of resolve. Did you notice that? He summons his soul to worship God. He commands himself to worship. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He talks to himself. He doesn't leave his worship to the mood of the moment. He forces himself to worship in some ways. He brings himself to worship. Now his heart may be overflowing, and in this case it may be easy, but you and I know sometimes we have to pray until we pray. Sometimes we have to praise until we praise. We can leave our worship of God, our expression of thanksgiving, to a mood, to, a, to an, uh, you know, an, an emotion. That just won't work. It's not only total, it's not only a matter of resolve, it's cognitive and forget not all his benefits. If he's going to give thanks to God, he's going to have to do some thinking. He's going to have to dredge up from his unconscious mind, from his memory, the past actions of God, the former kindnesses of God. They seem to slip into the background so quickly and so easily. He can't allow that to happen. He wants to give thanks to God with the totality of his person. And so he commands his soul to give thanks, and he applies his mind to dredging up those things that he is allowed to sink to the bottom of his consciousness. Was it Spurgeon that said, we write God's blessing in sand, and we write our grievances on stone? It's true. And so I want to help you and me to count our blessings, to show some gratitude this afternoon. In fact, there's three things that the psalmist becomes conscious of. He's conscious of what God gives him, and he wants to give thanks for that. He's conscious of what God has not given him. He wants to give thanks for that. Just a little thought we'll come back to. Do you give thanks to God not only for what He gives, but for what He withholds? Hold that thought. He gives thanks to God for what God gives, what God doesn't give, and what God has promised yet to give. Let me show you it in the text. Follow along. If you're taking notes, first thought, show some gratitude regarding what the Lord gives. Now, I'm not sure there's a great distinction between worship and praise, but perhaps if there is a distinction, typically in worship we give thanks to God for who He is. 
We extol His attributes. We focus on His person. When it comes to praise, we tend to give thanks to God for what He has done. His benefits. And that's why this is a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of praise. Because the psalmist is focused, not exclusively, but mostly on what God gives. On what God does. Forget not His benefits, His goodness, and His mercy. Now, we would be remiss if we thought that the psalmist isn't interested in the character of God, in worshiping God just for who He is, His intrinsic worth. Because you'll see in verse 6, he acknowledges God as a righteous judge. In verse 7, he acknowledges God as a faithful leader. In verse 13, he acknowledges God as a loving Father. And in verse 19, he acknowledges God as a glorious King. But as we come to the opening verses, the emphasis is clearly on praise, thanksgiving, gratitude. In fact, he uses five verbs, doesn't he? To show his gratitude for God's incessant goodness and mercy. The verbs are forgive, heal, redeem, crown, satisfy. He forgives all our iniquities. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our lives from the pit. He crowns us with loving kindness. He satisfies us with good things. And He renews our youth as the eagle. Let's just work our way through that. Just, just let me stir up some thoughts in your mind as to why you should give thanks to God today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Number one, He forgives all of our iniquities. We're going to come back to this a little later on with regards to what God doesn't give. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. But there's an acknowledgement here that, that the psalmist has been a recipient of God's redemption. And you'll notice that it is at the head of the list because it is the greatest of all blessings. I mean, given a choice, think about this just to draw one contrast. Given a choice, would you rather have good health or eternal life? Would you rather be sick and saved or healthy and unsaved? And that's the kind of thought. I mean, of all of God's blessings, the greatest blessing is forgiveness of sin. Doesn't Jesus tell us it's better to go into the next life maimed? <laughs> no, it's, it's a wonderful thing to know that it is well with our souls. I mean, if it's well with our bodies, that's great. If we've got money in the bank, that's great. If our kids are obedient, that's great. If we're gainfully employed, that's great. But above and beyond that all, if it's well with our soul, if we can say, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole has been kneeled to the cross and I bear it no more, then praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Hold that thought, we'll come back to it. It's a wonderful thing to be saved. I have a dear friend in Oklahoma, Dr. Mark Hitchcock. He'll be with us Sunday night at our church. He's a local church pastor in Oklahoma. He teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written 20 books on prophecy. He told me a story one day. He was preaching somewhere in Oklahoma, and a man came up to him and said, you know what, Pastor Hitchcock, I wish I had a second soul so that I could get saved all over again. It's a beautiful thought. Have you ever wished you had a second soul just to get saved all over again? To become a recipient of God's grace and mercy? Are you thankful for what God gives? He gives you forgiveness he removes and cancels all your iniquity. Number two, He heals all your diseases. He nurses you back to health. You, you, there may be a link here. I don't want to force it between sin and sickness. Sometimes there is, not all the time. In fact, David tells us, doesn't he, in Psalm 32, that before he enjoyed the forgiveness of God, his bones grew old. His immunity system was depressed. He was physically and psychologically all over the map because of guilt unresolved as he understood his offense before God. Because David was a great sinner. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And perhaps David has that in mind that sometimes our sin and sickness are linked. James 5 may argue that. 
But you know what? Broadly speaking, you can just be sick because you're part of a fallen world. <laughs> Romans 8, right? In this body, we groan. And, and, and we're reminded here that the God we worship and love is a God who promotes health. I am, I am the healer, he says in Exodus 15, verse 26. He promotes health and sustains life. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and He makes alive. In fact, this Hebrew word can be stretched to take in the idea of setbacks, adversity, and, and, and you know what, tough times in life. You can see that idea in Deuteronomy 29-22, Jeremiah 14, verse 19. So the point is this, the God we worship is a God who in His kindness often heals our sicknesses, nurses us back to health, and brings us through many troubles and trials. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. And we ought to give thanks to God for that. The God who restores our soul and the God who indeed heals our bodies. You know, I'm often asked as a pastor, I understand that I've got a congregation of people and many of them are sick and many of them have got life-threatening diseases. Many of them have chronic conditions. And you know what? I don't blame them for coming and asking me, Pastor, do you believe that God heals everybody? And I usually say to them, I do believe God heals everybody, some now and everybody later. Heaven's the greatest healing. And God promises that. God will heal all our diseases, sooner or later. He may do it in His kindness and sovereignty and providence while we're on earth. But some of the greatest saints of God have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ quite sick. And then they were healed. Here's another thought. Give him thanks for um, the fact that he heals our sicknesses and that he forgives our iniquities and he redeems our life from destruction. I love that. God delivers us from danger and life-threatening situation. In fact, in the Jewish mind, this word redeem would immediately take them back to the Exodus and how God redeemed the nation from slavery. This thought is all over the Psalms, how God preserves His people, guards His people. His name is a strong tower into which they run and find themselves safe. I love Psalm 121, verse 8, The Lord will preserve us in our going out and in our coming in. Can David stand as he did one day in 1 Samuel 17 and say, You know what? When it concerning the, 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 the Philistine, you know, God will deliver me from the Philistine because God has delivered me from the paw, the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. David had his salvation stories, not just spiritual salvation, but physical salvation. This was Paul's experience, wasn't it? You go to um, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, where Paul says this, you know what? My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, were perse which, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Speaking about his second imprisonment here, his impending death, what, is, what does Paul say in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18? But the Lord has stood with me, strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. That's beautiful. Can you give testimony this afternoon to the fact you've dodged some bullets? Perhaps as a police officer can speak literally of dodging some bullets. Or one of our brave military men or women has God not given some of us a reprieve from death and destruction? My wife's here. She can tell you about a crash she was involved in in which a man died. I spent six years in the Royal Ulster Constabulary in Northern Ireland at the height of the Troubles in North Belfast. We lost several colleagues. But through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And the grace that has led me safe this far is the grace that will lead me home. 
I have an aunt who's now with the Lord, who escaped death twice before the Lord saved her. He delivered her from physical danger, and then He delivered her from eternal danger. She was in a hospital once when a, when, when, a, when a unit of terrorists went in to kill a political enemy, and as they shot the person and ran out, they bumped into her, and in a momentary reaction, the gunman put a pistol to the temple of her head and then pulled it down and ran on. A moment she would never forget. A moment that we would remind her, Aunt Margaret, God was good. What if He had pulled the trigger? You'd be lost forever. And yet she continued in her disobedience. One day she was a security guard in this, one of the gates in Belfast and she had a, a calendar conflict and so she asked a, another girl on the team would she do her shift that afternoon and then she would do her shift the next day. The girl agreed and that afternoon that girl was shot dead by the IRA. Should have been my Aunt Margaret. I think God was knocking and eventually she got the message and was wonderfully saved. We've all got stories like that. You know what? Wasn't it Churchill who said that there are a few things more exhilarating than being shot at without result? You'll get that a little later on this afternoon. And there's nothing more exhilarating, nothing more that triggers our worship from God as being shot at without result, being delivered from destruction. Number four, the psalmist is thankful that God has crowned his life with loving kindness and tender mercies. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's just a beautiful thought. Just take that image of, of the crown. I mean, David knew about crowns. God had given David the privilege of being king of Israel. If you go back to Psalm 21 and verse 3, you'll read about the king of Israel and, and God's kindness to him. In fact, if you go to verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices in your salvation. How greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. David's speaking out of that world. It's not your world. The only crown you're ever going to wear is at Burger King. But here's the issue. David is saying, you know what? It's something to get up one morning in your life and realize before that day's done, the crown will be placed on your head and you will be king. You will be enthroned. And he's taken that idea. And he's saying, do you realize every day of your life God treats you as royalty? That He enthrones your concerns in His heart and mind and moves His providence to protect His people? and take care of His church, and bless His saints. That's a beautiful thought. That every day of your life, God crowns you with loving kindness. He should treat you like a criminal, shouldn't He? He should treat me like a criminal. But He gives us the royal treatment. It all started when we can of faith in Jesus Christ and repented of our sin. And in that beautiful analogy of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when the son comes home stinking of pig swill, the father says, hey, go and get him the best robe. Get him a ring for his finger. Get him shoes for his feet. That father crowned him with loving kindness. That happened to us. And God gave us the righteousness of Christ to clothe our sin. The signet ring of the Holy Spirit as a sign of His engagement to eternally marry us in Jesus Christ. He's given us the preparation of the Gospel as a pair of shoes. He crowns our life with loving kindness. It's a wonderful thing to get up every day feeling like a king. You say, I don't feel like a king. And I say, why not? Isn't your life crowned with loving kindness and tender mercies? What about this that last thought? He satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. <laughs> Listen, God loads our lives down with good things. No good thing will He withhold to those that walk uprightly. 
I mean, God sustains us and sweetens us as He does all of creation. Look at Psalm 104, verse 28. Speaking of the animal kingdom, what do we read? When you give it to them, that is their food, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. If you go to Psalm 107, verse 9, you've got a similar thought about God's people. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, for He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. He not only gives us our daily bread, He gives us dessert with it. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. God loads us down with good things. From birth through youth to old age, God renews us with His kindness and His mercy each and every day. I like what someone has written. If you woke up this morning with more than more health and illness, you are more blessed than the million who will not survive this week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, the pangs of starvation, you're ahead of 500 million people in the world. If you can attend a church meeting without fear of harassment, arrest, torture, death, you are more blessed than three billion people in the world. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, spare change in your pocket, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. Do you want me to go on? Why are we... Such grumblers in the United States. Such snivelers. When the lines have fallen onto us in pleasant places. Amen? It's a blessing to be born in the United States. Political, religious freedom. Access to health care. Gainful employment. Food, drink, shelter. Having food and clothing, therewith be content. Anything above that's gravy. We're swimming in gravy. And still, we enter His courts without thanksgiving in our hearts and His gates without praise. I remember some years ago, I was at a business luncheon in Toledo, Ohio, where I pastored for a while, go Bucks. I think it starts in two minutes. But you're not interested. I get it. That was Ohio State against Nebraska anyway. I was in a Toledo, Ohio. We went to this business lunch and a Vietnam vet who had done well since he had come home from that war, had a business in Ohio, done real well, wonderful believer. He, he, he talked that day. I never forgot. He talked about how on the flight home from Vietnam he had been a prisoner for a while. When, when he got back, he came down the steps of the airplane, got on his knees and kissed the tarmac. That was a poignant moment. You could have heard a pin drop. And then he said this, and folks, I want to remind you that there's no such a thing as a bad day in the United States of America. I've never forgot that. I'm an immigrant. I'd agree with that. I arrived here in 1994. This place has been good to me and my family, and I hope we're good to it. I've never had a bad day in the United States of America. Freedom. Good things. Blessings, beauty, travel, food. Oh, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And forget not His benefits. He forgives. He heals. He redeems. He crowns. He satisfies. Let's move on. There's a second thing the psalmist gives thanks for. He only gives thanks for what God has given. He gives thanks for what God has not given. Think about this for a few moments with me. This is kind of counterintuitive. We tend to give thanks for the things that God gives, but we tend not to give thanks for the things He doesn't give. Have you given thanks to God, as I said earlier, for what He withholds, for what He doesn't give? In fact, you'll notice in verse 8, don't you, that God is described as both merciful and gracious. What is it that God does in grace? God does in grace this. He gives us what we don't deserve. 
But what does God do in mercy? If you are given what you don't deserve in grace, I'll tell you, in mercy, you're not given what you do deserve. You ever think about that? Mercy is the mirror image of grace. Grace is giving to the undeserved. And mercy is not giving what the person does deserve. And those two twin truths should be like jet engines igniting our worship and our thanksgiving. That should propel us forward in our praise. Lord, I thank You today for what You've given me. Your Son, the Holy Spirit, the great and exceeding promises of God, the promise of eternity with You. I thank You for what You haven't given me what my sins deserve. Temporary punishment. Eternal damnation. That's the thought that David wants us to grasp. I I love verse 10. It kind of sums it up. He He does not deal with us according to our iniquities, nor repay us according to our sins. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. That's beautiful. We need to remind ourselves. In fact, I was reminded of this reality just recently I was at a MOPS meeting at our church, and along with one of our pastors, we were taking some Q&A from the young mothers in our congregation, and we got onto the topic of discipline. And we get into that, and you know, we, we laid it out there as I understand the Bible to teach, you know. Not that the Bible says this, but the Bible teaches that you spur the rod, you'll spoil the child. You can reprove, you can remove, but sometimes you need to physically discipline. We were getting into all of that. And once we've said that, and the other pastor kind of came in and echoed in behind me, he did say this, but he says, once in a while, as we were raising our boys, for the sake of the gospel, when they had done something flagrantly wrong, I didn't punish them. I didn't discipline them. Because I wanted them to understand that's exactly how God has treated us. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities or dealt with us after our sins. That's the point David wants to get across. David wants us to praise God from our inmost being with our utmost strength for what He has given and for what He has withheld. In fact, let's let's kind of delve, delve into that. Let's remind ourselves how different God is from us because we tend to deal with people on the basis of what they have done to us. So if they have done good to us, if they have favored us in some manner, we return the compliment. We favor them. But if they have hurt us, if they oppose us, we tend to ignore them. And at worst, we target them. We keep their injustices fresh in our mind. We will not allow ourselves to forget what cannot be forgotten. So we think. We bury the hatchet, but we do it with the handle sticking up. That's how you and I operate apart from the grace of God. There's the merchant of Venice in all of us. We want our pound of flesh. But I'm thankful God's not like that. God hasn't dealt with us according to our sins. God has favored us when we didn't favor Him. God has been merciful at His own expense to us in Jesus Christ. In fact, let's just spend a few minutes looking at these beautiful analogies, I think, to reinforce the wonder of this, the beauty of this. Look at the height of God's mercy. The greatness of God's mercy towards David and us is measured against the infinitude of space. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those that fear Him. That kind of language you'll find again in Psalm 36, verse 5, in Psalm 57, verse 10, where God's faithfulness is said to reach above the heights of heaven. So that's his analogy. He's trying to think how he can communicate the incomprehensible, incomparable mercy of God. And this is the day before the Hubble telescope. This is the day where man just could look at the heavens with the naked eye. 
He couldn't think beyond what his eye could see. And so his point is this. You want to know how high God's mercy is? It's as high as the heavens. But we live in the age of space travel. We live in the age of the Hubble telescope. We just know how far those heavens go. How deep the universe is. How expansive it is. And the psalmist wants us to think about that. He wants us to embrace that. That you know what? God's mercy is as vast as space. You can't contain. You can't measure the mercy of God. I could give an analogy for that, but time won't allow us. What about the, the height of God's mercy? What about the breadth of God's mercy? I love this. As high as the heavens are above the earth... And David doesn't know what we know. So great is his steadfast love towards all who fear him. Now notice this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. David offers another point of comparison. So completely has God removed the guilt and penalty of our sin from us that it is said to be as far as the east is from the west. And that's very interesting. He didn't say as far as the north is from the south. You say, Pastor, what's your point? Well, I don't want to read into the text. I always want to read out of the text. I hope I'm not reading into the text here. I want to, I want to, I want to imagine this is somewhat in David's mind. Maybe not, but, but go with me for a moment. He didn't say north and south. And certainly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's the case. Because think about this. If you travel north and keep traveling north, at some point you do what? You pass the North Pole and you start traveling south. That's not, that's not infinite. But let me ask you this. If you started traveling east and kept traveling east, what would happen? You'd keep traveling east. At no point will you travel west in traveling east. I want to believe that's somewhere in David's mind because it preaches. Don't tell Dr. MacArthur I said that. But that's the point. It's a beautiful thought. Boy, as high as the heavens. That's how large God's mercy is. And, and, and in an infinite manner, His mercy comes to us as far as the east is from the west. David's looking beyond the mere circumference of the earth, which today is 24,900 miles. But you can't measure the distance between the east and the west. Before we go on to our last thought, we, we need to pause because something needs to be addressed here. We love this thought that God is gracious and merciful. Those two aspects of His character we find great comfort in. He gives us what we don't deserve and He doesn't give us what we do deserve. And if you want to measure that, think about the height of the heavens and think about the infinitude of east and west. But you know what? The text tells us, doesn't it? In verse 6, that God is just. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Hold on a minute. How can God be gracious given us what we don't deserve, unmerciful, withholding what we do deserve, and remain just. Is God soft on sin? Has God agreed just to kind of turn a blind eye to our wrongdoings and pretend it has never happened? Can God remain holy and just and yet deal with us in a way that's not commensurate with our sin? I think the answer is yes. Because the psalmist doesn't say here that God didn't deal with sin. God must deal with sin. There's that old statement, right? The guilty man who goes free condemns the judge. Or the judge is condemned when the guilty man goes free. How can God remain holy and yet just and yet forgive us the unjust? Because he did deal with sin. Back then in David's time, the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial offerings, God dealt with sin temporarily through the shedding of blood and the death of the innocent victim in the place of the guilty. 
But it was all pointing to John 1.29 when the Lamb of God would come who would permanently, fully, eternally take away the sin of the world. And you know what, folks? That's the issue today. God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And God can forgive us our sin because God has dealt with sin in Jesus Christ. Come with me over the centuries to a hill called Calvary just outside the city of David in Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus has been crucified before man. He hasn't crowned with tender mercies. He's crowned with thorns. And God's not dealing with him after his righteousness. He's dealing with him on the basis of our sin. The one who knew no sin and did no sin has made sin for us that we might become what we are not. That is the righteousnesses of God in him. It's powerful. It's wonderful. It's the grounds of our thanksgiving. As we said earlier, oh, that we had two souls just to get saved all over again. This wonderful thought that Jesus took our sin. I heard Alistair Begg say at the Master's Seminary one day, he had heard a preacher in Scotland say, for something to become clean, something has to become dirty. You know, think about your windscreen. You take a cloth. For your windscreen to become clean, that cloth has to become dirty. Hard to believe that, isn't it? That the spotless, sinless Son of God was made sin for us. It is our sin and all its guilt and penalty and ugliness was put on Him. And He carried it away like the scapegoat. In Luke, Leviticus 16. Is that not grounds for praise? Back to that thought. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is kneeled to the cross and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord almost. That's why so much of our singing has to be redemptive-based, gospel-based, because it is the blessing at the head of the list of blessings. Okay. For, for the time that remains, there's one other thought I think you'll enjoy. We're not only to give thanks for what God gives, which is enough. And we're not only to give thanks to God for what He doesn't give, which is absolutely enough. But there's more. We can give thanks to God for what He has yet to give. Isn't that amazing? You haven't exhausted God's goodness. You haven't come close to exhausting God's goodness. Your life is but a thimble. It's a bucket. His goodness is an ocean, deep and wide. And the psalmist gets that. There's an exhaustible side to God's giving. Scroll down to verse 15. You'll notice a contrast is made here. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, but, but the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and places there no more. But in contrast to man's frailty, in contrast to man's mortality, the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting. Amen? I know it's, what is it? Quarter to five, but we need an amen for that. Amen? It's everlasting. To everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. It's beautiful. The frailty and temporality of man's experience is set against the fixed and steadfast nature of God's love. Man's days are like the grass, but God's love is ageless and abiding. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. That's beautiful. That's a well you can keep going back to. It'll never run dry. Your cup will always overflow. Because God's grace is everlasting. God's mercy is everlasting. It's not fickle. It's not changeable. Let me, let me give you another verse that I just love. and You, you need to write this down and make it a favorite. Psalm 31, 
verse 19 kind of gives us what we're talking about here. How beautiful is this verse? Have you read this recently? Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the people of mankind. Notice that. God has got goodness stored up for you. There are warehouses of goodness and mercy lining heaven and your name's on them. Stuff for tomorrow. Stuff for the day after. Stuff for 2019, 2020, 2021. God has goodness stored up for you. And you know what that means eventually. That's the Father's house. That's pleasures forevermore at His right hand. It just keeps going. God's love for us is a torrent. It's a Niagara. How terrible it is that our praise is a trickle. Almost down to nothing. Dry. His well is full of goodness. The well of our praise is often dry. Needs priming. I hope Psalm 103 will prime it. God's goodness and mercy is everlasting. It has no expiration date. There's no weight limit. You know, for a time, my wife and I did Weight Watchers. And, you know, if you know anything about Weight Watchers, they kind of they look at your height, your weight, and then they give you so many points. That's the way it works. And you've got so many points of, of eating that, that you can kind of spread out over the day. Uh, given my body mass, my, my height, I, I was um, given 31 points, which were usually done by about 3.30 in the afternoon, which means I went to bed about 6 so that I could get up and have 31 points in the morning. I, I, I'm glad that God's grace is not like Weight Watchers points. You don't get like 31. And if you use them by 4 o'clock, there's nothing else. That's not the way it works. It's everlasting. Unending. I love John 1 verse 16. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Or, or as the, he, the Greek has it, grace instead of grace. Let me try and help you with this as an image. It's beautiful. One, one writer gave me this. He says, imagine standing by the edge of a, a fast-flowing river. Now, now, to the naked eye, unless you kind of do what I'm about to tell you, just take a look at that river. It just looks like one stream, one body of water flowing past you. But he says, I want you to pick a point on the bank of the river by your feet and watch the water replacing the water, replacing the water. Water instead of water. Water upon water. That's what God's grace is like. A never-ending stream. Isn't that what the hymn writer says? A never-ending stream of grace. I did a series at our church. If you want to listen to it, you can get it off our radio ministry, ktt.org. It's called Total Grace. And I was challenged one day by that thought, of grace upon grace. And I went on a search. And I come up with seven or eight different aspects to God's grace. Isn't there saving grace in Ephesians 2? And then there's strengthening grace in Hebrews 4. There's serving grace in Romans 12. There's singing grace in Colossians 3. There's speaking grace in Colossians 4. There's sufficient grace in 2 Corinthians 12. You might be able to find some more. Grace upon grace. There isn't just grace to save you. There's grace to keep you. There's grace to help you forgive someone. There's grace to persevere. There's grace to serve effectively. That's what God is still to give us. God is committed to giving us that on the basis of His Son. Let me finish with this story, and I think the team will be out to sing. Roland Hill was a contemporary of Spurgeon in London. And he received a, a large monetary gift for a poor pastor working in the slums of London. And he thought to himself, you know what, if I, this guy wouldn't be used to this kind of money. And I think the best thing I can do is kind of parcel it out. I'll give him it a bit at a time. And so he made this poor pastor aware of this. And so each week he would send him a portion of the gift. 
And then with the money, a little note that always would finish with these words, more to follow. And that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks until that was exhausted. More to follow. Here's what Spurgeon said because he heard of that story with Roland Hill. Here's what Spurgeon said with regards to more to follow. When God forgives our sins, there's more forgiveness to follow. When He justifies us in the righteousness of Christ, but there's more to follow. He adopts us into His family, but there's more to follow. He prepares us for heaven, but there's more to follow. He gives us grace, but there's more to follow. He helps us in old age, but there's more to follow. And even when we arrive in the world to come, more to follow. Is God not good? May we hang our heads in shame because we enter His courts without thanksgiving hearts. But then let's lift our heads spurred on by Psalm 103 and start anew with a fresh set of downs to determine in your life, my life, and our churches in Bakersfield and Orange County to be people who are bubbling over with gratitude for what God gives, what He doesn't give, and what He has yet to give. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this conference. We thank You for its theme. We know it's a theme owned by You. We know that You have created all things for Your glory. And so as we begin to wrap up today, may we um, leave this place thankful for the Word we've heard, for exposure to inspirational thoughts, for the joy of worshiping together. We thank You for Your servants, the Gettys. We pray You'll bless them and use them. Keep them in the hollow of Your hand. Thank You for Pastor Steve and Grace Bible and all that they're doing to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We thank You for Valley Baptist and for um, Laurel Glen for hosting these events. And we pray, O oh God, that we would not go through all the doors You keep opening before us without pausing to thank You. And most of all, we thank You for Your Son, the indescribable gift. We realize we live in a world where people worship the creator creature rather than the Creator. That, that, uh, although they knew God, they denied God and did not give Him thanks. M- may we, in our act of worship and in our pursuit of praise, be subversive for Jesus Christ, calling the world back to that which they left. And we pray these all in Jesus' name. Amen.